This will be the second to final last sermon in our series in the Gospel of John. What a joy it's been to preach through this gospel in the last two years. See what God's doing in the life of our church as we grow in his word. um, Just really, really thankful. I want to pray as we dig in. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this time, this hour, this space that you provided. Lord, we thank you for your written word, word of God, to, to speak truth, to bring clarity and resolve. Lord, that you would love us enough to bring conviction, to not pander to our fleshly desires, but, but, but to upset um, in us what is in need of great reformation and healing and growth. That you are a good God, a present God who is at work, who is mighty and worthy to be glorified, as we just sang. Father, I thank you for the work that you've done in the last two years through this gospel, and as we round this last corner, Lord, and prepare to bring it to a close, we're just very grateful for these words of Christ and, and witness of his life, death, and resurrection that so blesses and, and moves and motivates us, Lord. Uh, speak through me this morning with, with vigor and with clarity that, that you would do the work on each life as you intend to do. We love you. Submit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 21, verse 15 through 19 is our focus this morning. Let's start by reading 15 through 17. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Let's first be reminded of what happened before Jesus went to the cross, by which this conversation is somewhat of a follow-up. It is not the first time that Peter has stood around a fire to declare how he feels about Jesus. In John chapter 18, three chapters ago, we read that Peter followed after Jesus, after Jesus was arrested, to the courtyard of the high priest where he stood that night by a fire to warm himself. And it was there that three separate inquiries came of Peter as to whether or not he was with or knew Jesus. Each time, Peter flatly denied even knowing Jesus. This is one of the closest men to Jesus in the last three years, uh, the inner circle of his disciples. For fear of persecution and to protect his own skin, Peter showed great weakness 
And instead of standing in his faith to proclaim his love and devotion to Jesus, he lied and said he didn't even know him. I shared this quote uh, months ago when we preached that sermon from the old theologian A.W. Pink as we processed Peter's failure in sin. Pink says, In himself, the believer is as weak as water. Only two hours before Peter had partaken of the Lord's Supper, had heard the most touching address and prayer that has ever fell on mortal ears, and had received the plainest possible warning from Jesus himself, and yet he failed, he, f- he fall. This also shows us the danger of self-confidence. Peter's Calling Peter's denial of Jesus a beacon mercifully set up in Scripture is to prevent others from making shipwreck. You fast forward now to our text today where Jesus has died on the cross, has resurrected after three days in the grave, and has now been making appearances with those uh, of the disciples in different occasions. And the setting of this text today, as we studied last week, is the, the shore of the Sea of Galilee, by which they just made an incredible haul of fish after Jesus instructed them how to throw their net off the boat. And Jesus had prepared a wonderful barbecue fire and morning breakfast for them as they arrived to the shore. So they've just finished eating. And Jesus turns to Peter and says, Simon, son of John, Do you love me more than these? Now, there's been a lot of conjecture as to whom Jesus is referring here. Who are the these in that question? Some think Jesus is referring to the other disciples. Do you love me more than these? His brothers, his family. Others say that it's Peter's love for fish or for his profession. He's a professional fisherman. The love of his job and what he does for a living. According to Scripture, though, both must, both must be true of faithful followers of Christ, that he will be second to none. Peter's love for Christ must be more than for his brothers or his family. We, we read in Matthew 10, 37 and 38, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And the essence of that teaching is is Jesus pointing out that you essentially are an idolater. You essentially love something more than God to love these more. And that the, the right and redeemed place of our hearts in salvation is to finally have a rightly placed and prioritized love for God above all else. It's essential that our love for Jesus is far superior to anything else in our lives. This is the the very um, essence of the great commandment. Jesus said in Matthew 22, 37 through 40, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. These two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Peter's love 
for Christ must also be more than for fishing or for his profession. If he will truly be a follower of Christ, we see the call to him to be a disciple back in Mark chapter 1, 16 through 18, passing along the Sea of Galilee. He saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Literally left their careers, all their training, all their best to be devoted followers of Christ. Because God is love, according to Scripture, it is only out of the overflow of a deep and devoted love for God, above all else, that we will rightly love those entrusted to our care. Without a first and primary love for God, my motivation to love my bride or my kids or, or, or my family or friends is only out of the power of what I generate, only out of my best. The problem is my best in sin is so often so many days self-serving. But the overflow of a love, a deep love, a true love for God and God's work in me, God's love in and through me, then manifest a selfless love for others that I would, I would never generate on my own. A patient love, an enduring love, a merciful love, a love that doesn't do things for my bride or for my kids or for others with self-serving motives behind them. Oh, it's been phenomenal to see how God has done that work in my family and many of our families. Don't miss this, that when Jesus is commissioning Peter to feed his sheep in this passage, that commission to do that work is essentially built on Peter's love for Jesus. Now, why is this so critical? Because we will not love rightly those in our midst or entrusted to us by God above if our love for Him is not supreme. My love for them will be rightly manifest only if my love for God is first. Now, before we move on, we must see the reorientation or reaffirmation that Jesus is taking Peter through here. Three times Jesus asks if Peter loves him, and three times Peter says, of course I do. Now, this is clearly how Peter feels towards Jesus. But his actions, as of late, have told a different story, have they not? He denied even knowing Jesus to save his own tale. In that, when it counted most, when his love could have been most sacrificial for Jesus, even at that, at the likely expense of his own life or health, which is what he was in fear of, Peter decides to pull back love for his Lord and to appease the flesh, to serve himself by denying Jesus three times. I think this is why Jesus asked him three times if he loves him. He's giving him three opportunities to proclaim his love for Jesus in the wake of his sinful denial. Now, I wonder if we miss this in our lives too. When faced with great temptation, 
maybe to lust after someone who's not your spouse. To turn from that temptation, to turn from the opportunity to give in to what is self-serving out of true love and devotion for the one you claim to love is a greater moment to put on display your true love for your spouse. A better opportunity than carrying the groceries in from the car. Than the everyday ways that we look to do that, that many days we call sufficient. But what happens when that proclaimed love is put to the deeper test? Do we fail? Do we fall? Do we give in to our flesh? Or by the grace of God and our growing relationship with God and his love in and through us and sanctification do we resist do we honor those that we love with our actions and not just our words Peter has been very vocal about his love and devotion to Jesus we have many texts we don't have time to go into all of them this morning but you're familiar with many of them where he's just quick to say Lord I I love you I'll do anything for you he says that again and again He's just constantly, like ADHD, he's just constantly like, Lord, like I love you, I'm here, whatever, let's go. Along the way, Peter was tested, and Peter failed. In this conversation, Jesus is preparing Peter for another test to come. And this is my prayer for each of us as we journey through today's sermon and beyond. That we too would be prepared for what's ahead. That you would know that you're forgiven in Christ for what's behind. That our love for God, for others, and the love of God in and through us would manifest itself in such a way where what is ahead is so much sweeter than what's behind. Praise God that he forgives us, that he restores us when we fall down and fall down hard. Amen? The Bible is clear to say that all of Jesus' chosen and redeemed sheep will finish the race. So this means that Jesus knows Peter's heart, and because Jesus has chosen him as one of his own, He will give him, Jesus will give Peter the needed perseverance to finish the race. But Jesus must first reestablish Peter since his fall, if nothing else, in Peter's own mind and heart for what's ahead. He must remind him that Peter will best show his love for Jesus, not with his words, but with his actions. Peter knows that Jesus loves him. And Peter knows that Jesus knows that Peter loves him. And and that's why Peter says again and again, you know, you know I love you. He doesn't say again and again, to prove that I love you, let me point at what I've done. He doesn't go there. He goes to the heart because he knows that Jesus knows his heart. You know that I love you. 
And Peter is right at pointing at the foundation of their relationship. It's not based on Peter's works of what Peter has earned, but on the grace of God. That God is the one who has saved him and set him free. God is the one who's chosen him and commissioned him for his life and work, for his glory. The work of God to redeem us is the foundation of your love relationship with God. Don't ever allow your own works to somehow become the foundation of whether or not God loves you or you get to love him forever. It's not based on those works. Hallelujah. But the evidence of our love for him will be shown in our work. It's so critical we see the difference. Jesus knows Peter loves him. Jesus is not seeking to hear it from Peter so that he can believe it. Jesus knows. What he's doing in this conversation with Peter is really for Peter's sake. To give Peter a chance to repent and to be ready to move forward into radical ministry of what lies ahead. Peter's future ministry is the aim of Jesus in the fact that Jesus says three times, in response to Peter saying, you know I love you, what does Jesus say? Feed my lambs, tend to my sheep, feed my sheep. Jesus is saying, let your faith in me, Peter, your love for me, be shown by your obedience and faithful ministry. Let let your love for me be more than words. You give evidence by your faithful devotion to me and my will. Jesus has said this all along the way. In verses like John 14, back to chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He adds here that Peter must do the work that he has set before him, which is to shepherd his flock. And before we look at that, take another moment just to do some internal evaluation with yourself again. Is your love for the Lord a religious proclamation that you've trained yourself to say and to believe? Or is it evidenced in a life that is truly in love with Him above all else? Here at Disciples Church, and according to the Holy Scriptures, we're not interested in your arm-twisted religious proclamation or buy-in. That's just another form of lostness. We want you to come to know the true God through the, His living Word, and the Gospel that sets you free and changes and transforms your life. Is your life devoted to his word and to his commission is it a daily lifestyle that shows a watching world that you truly and most fully love jesus above all else look at his last commissioning statement in verse 17 jesus said to him feed my sheep know that 
Jesus' commissioning of Peter here, and I think some have read it this way in, in history, is not meant to show a supremacy or a, a primacy of Peter above the other disciples. This isn't a, like, you're the new mob boss, and these guys are all kind of under you. He, he's not appointing Peter as some kind of chief shepherd over the other shepherds charged with shepherding his flock and spreading the gospel in nations. Peter himself, we know this because Peter himself doesn't claim any kind of hierarchy over the others. He himself refers to Jesus alone as the chief shepherd. We see that in 1 Peter 5, 4, later in Peter's first letter that he writes. Also in that same letter, chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, Peter places himself as a fellow elder alongside the other shepherds of God's flock. So a needed clarity. Jesus' choice to refer to his blood-bought church, his people, as sheep, is also um, not unique in that it was a common reference in, in, to the Jewish listeners of that day. If you remember, I spoke to this when we studied John chapter 10, um, that was quite a while ago. Verse 11, Jesus says of John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He's talking about his people, his redeemed people, of which you who die to self to give your life to Christ are one of his forever. His sheep. The psalmist David, King David, the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, was a shepherd himself. He employed this analogy repeatedly in the Old Testament. Psalm 100, verse 3, we are God's people and the sheep of his pasture. Psalm 77, 2, God, you lead your people like a flock. Psalm 79, 13, when your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give you thanks forever. Throughout the Bible, we see the same parallel between man and sheep. Another Old Testament reference to consider is Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11. It says that God tends to his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that are with young. God compares us to sheep in his word so often. He, he wants in this to communicate one very important truth that we need not miss. That in our sin, we really don't like. He wants us to know that we are utterly dependent on a shepherd. In our flesh, as prideful men and women, we often say, no, I don't need God, I don't, I don't need church or the bible or the gospel i'm good on my own we as sheep like to declare no no i'm good somehow thinking that we're going to figure out our own eternal salvation we're going to make our own way and it's just it's our sin that causes us to be so prideful and arrogant to think that as a sheep we're, we're good without a shepherd and and that's a reality a place where we've all been so that's not unique to any of us 
But it's a good reminder altogether each day that we're dependent on a shepherd. Isaiah 53, 6 says, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way in rebellion to God. Mark 9, 36, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Psalm 78, 52, he brought his sheep out like a flock. He led them like sheep through the desert. So why? Why do we need a shepherd? And it comes back to our very sinful tendency for why we think we don't need a shepherd. It's, it's that we are spiritually helpless and dependent, just like sheep are very helpless and dependent animals. The doctrine of total depravity makes it clear, according to Scripture, that while we may be highly intelligent and physically super gifted in God's creation, human beings are, we are spiritually dead in our sin. We have no hope on our own for eternal life with a holy God apart from the perfect work of the Good Shepherd. Romans 3.23 very famously says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 8.7 says, The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. We need to be reborn. We need to have new life given, faith in Christ on our own. We do not seek God. The Word of God is clear that we, we don't know how to seek God or obey God. Why? Because we're desperate for a shepherd. This is truly good news that Jesus comes not to condemn us in our sin as He rightly could and should. We're worthy of that eternal punishment because of our sin. Instead, He comes for His sheep. He comes as the good shepherd. Jesus is referred to in the scriptures by many titles, but relating to our passage today, Jesus is given the title shepherd we see in the scriptures three different ways. The good shepherd in John 10, the chief shepherd in 1 Peter 5, and the great shepherd in Hebrews 13. God himself, God the Son, put on flesh to be the shepherd that we are desperate for. The good shepherd, Jesus Christ, has come to gather his sheep, to bring them into his eternal fold. And he does this, now watch this, this is the beauty of the gospel, he does this by laying down his life. John 10, 11, I'll read it again. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This is the gospel, the good news that changes your life when you finally get it. The perfect, holy Son of God, the one whose name is I am, Yahweh, humbles himself to put on flesh and come for his wayward sheep to gather us and give us new life. What does it mean he lays down his life for his sheep? It means the shepherd, 
the owner of the flock, the keeper of the sheep. It means when the wolves come, he becomes like a sheep himself to lay down his life, the prey of the wolf for the salvation of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The key word there is for. In the Greek, a better translation of that word is in place of. I lay down my life in place of the sheep. Jesus lays down his life in place of the sheep. The shepherd becomes a sheep, led to the slaughter. As we see throughout Scripture, that imagery is given. Because you and I are sheep, we will follow a shepherd. The question is, which one will we follow? I pray you would come to know and truly trust in and love deeply the good shepherd, the only one who lays down his life for the sheep. Someone will lead us. Someone will lead our children. But there's only one worth following. The only one in the end who leads us with a selfless love, a sacrificial love, the only one who can take on the death we deserve so that we can have life with him forever. We need not just any shepherd, we need the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. Amen? Church, cherish this good news today as we hear Jesus now tell Peter and the disciples to feed his sheep. See in that statement all that comes with the joy and the beauty of what it means to be one of his sheep. The fact that Jesus has a flock, that we are chosen to be part of it, is unfathomable. The fact that he cares for us deeply and provides for us is so awesome. Peter will later speak to this reality in his first epistle, 1 Peter chapter 2, 25 for you were strained like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd, the overseer of your souls. If you have not confessed your sin and trusted your life to Jesus as Lord and Savior, do so today. If this work of God to save undeserving people is good news to your soul, Go to God. Go to God in prayer and confess your sin and repent to turn from it, to trust your life to Jesus, to be adopted into his flock. It's not something you can earn. It's the most amazing gift given to be given eyes to see and have ears to hear that this good news is for you. I pray it be so with all of us who are in his flock, in mind, Jesus commissions the apostles to tend to and to feed the sheep. Paul will speak of this high call given to them later in Acts chapter 20, 28. Paul will say, keep watch over yourselves, speaking to the other elders and shepherds, and all the flock, of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of which God 
the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. In this, Jesus is entrusting his under-shepherds, he's the chief shepherd, his under-shepherds, pastors, elders, are the titles we we call them today, with the high call to care for his blood-bought flock, to tend to them and to feed them. Paul will clarify the high priority this is for those God ordains as qualified and ready to lead the sheep. In Titus 1.9, Paul speaks of the shepherd that he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message that is, as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. This is feeding the sheep. To teach sound doctrine, not, not just the good ideas and manifestation of whatever we think we can come up with to gather crowds, but to faithfully preach the word of God and to refute those who oppose it. God puts this in place so that those who make decisions for the local flock, that those decisions are not based on our best ideas or preferences, but that we teach the sheep not our own man-driven ideas or wisdom, but the authority of the Word of God. I ask you today to pray for your shepherds. I know many of you do. Pray for us to remain faithful to His call, that we lead His flock according to His Word, and that we teach and tend to His flock well. Will you also pray for our gospel partners in our city, in our region. I've had the joy of starting up the Gospel Coalition in Central California and gathering like-minded shepherds from around the valley. Will you pray for them as well and the ministry that's happening to the, to the churches in our, in our region? Will you, will you pray for shepherds who are guilty of speaking their own mind? Then their own agenda who are guilty of raising it above God's holy word, who are guilty of standing in the pulpit many Sundays and speaking all too much of a percentage of ideas and, and, and good feelings and, and remedies of a man-driven agenda and just not preaching God's word. That they would see the error in their thinking, that clever sermon series that hardly dive into the power of God's word, are not what the sheep need, even though it often grows very big congregations. Pray for the efforts of myself and the other pastors in town as we've started what we're calling Reformation Bakersfield. An initiative with the aim to bring solid theology and teaching God's word to our city's sheep and our city's shepherds. Pray that a great reformation would take place here in Bakersfield and beyond as a result. Most of all, praise God for the good shepherd. Amen? Amen. Praise God for for his under shepherds starting with Peter and the apostles who faithfully preached the gospel, who penned the New Testament, which has led 
to the church that we're a part of today. God is faithful and is surely at work in us in all these things. Look at verse 18 and 19 now. He goes on to say, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. The simple reading of this portion of this text can seem to say, in your able-bodied youth, you did what you wanted to do, but as you grew old, you were unable to do what you wanted, and therefore then depended on others to help you dress and take care of you. But then John adds this clarity in verse 19, This he said, here's why he said this, to show what kind of death he was going to glorify God. So this must mean then something different than what it reads to be on the surface. So we got to dig back in and look a little deeper. And before we do, to better discern verse 18 and 19, it's helpful to read it in its context. And in the context of calling out Peter, to proclaim his love, and then to commission him to feed his sheep. It's just a weird turn to go, let me just talk to you now all of a sudden about just getting old. It makes a lot more sense that what he's saying here in verse 18 and 19 has to do with Peter's death and why a rightly devoted love to God and a commissioning to feed his sheep will equal a sacrificial death in his name. Something way more fitting to the whole trajectory of what Jesus is preparing Peter for. This helps us see why Jesus drives home with Peter three times his devotion to him. Why? Because if Peter thought it was difficult before Jesus' death on the cross to be devoted to him, it's going to get much harder for Peter moving forward. It's going to get so much harder that Peter will die an early death by crucifixion because he stands for the name of Jesus and teaches the gospel like he does. How do we know this? Well, look at these verses with me. First, Jesus starts by saying, truly, truly. Anytime we see that in Jesus' language, that emphasis is highlighting truth. I'm about to speak truth. Lean in, get your ears wide and open, and don't miss what I'm about to say. Now, it is true that when Peter was younger, before being called to serve Jesus with his life, he would do whatever he wanted. This was the way of his flesh, the sinful reality of our lives before the Lord is the Lord of our lives. We're the Lord of our lives in our sin. We just do whatever we want. When we sinfully didn't seek to honor God, We sought to serve ourselves and our fleshly desires. We have that in our own story, all of us. And this is the attraction of lost people in sin to not want to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus, but to stay on their own course just to do life the way they want. The problem is, while many think this is freedom, they're not free, but enslaved. Enslaved to do sin and only sin. Because of our depravity, 
enslaved to only deserve the eternal punishment of God. Everything hangs on the line. But Jesus brings the clarity he wants Peter to have as he prepares to move, as Peter prepares to move into his shepherding ministry. And he says, When you are old, you will stretch out your hands. Another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. He said this to show what kind of death he was to glorify God. The phrase stretch out your hands in that day was often used as a term to mean crucifixion. And with that understanding now, much more clarity as to what he's talking about. To affix you to the cross beam, you would, to hang there, you would have to have your arm stretched and nailed to it. This is the way Peter would die, by crucifixion. Now if you remember Jesus' words to Peter in chapter 13, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me, but you will follow afterward. Jesus said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you, if you only knew. That's John 13, 36, and 37. Jesus was going to be with the Father. This is prior to the death of crucifixion for Jesus. He was going to be with the Father, and then later, as he said clearly, will come back for his people to join him in the new heavens and the new earth. Come, Lord Jesus, come. <clears throat> this is truly good news, as with great anticipation, we long for our Lord forever, right? But Jesus is clear in his teaching that his disciples, to his disciples, that following him is not just about following him to heaven, but is much all about following him to the cross. So when Jesus says, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward, it has meaning of our eternity with him one day, but it also has meaning that relates to his teaching to his true followers to take up their cross daily and follow him for his namesake. When Christ died on the cross for sinners, he not only stood in our place doing what we could never do, paying fully for our sin, but also showed us what we must do as true followers of him, which is to take up our own cross, join him on the Calvary road of suffering and being hated by the world. He makes this teaching clear again and again and again. Matthew 16, 24 through 26, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? I've said it before, it's one phrase that's worth reflecting on again and again. It's a powerful truth that rocks much modern day Christian thinking, but it is the teaching of our Lord Christ Jesus died to save us from hell, but not to save us from the cross. He died so that we could be glorified, but not to keep us from being crucified. 
To not understand that's not to read his own teachings again and again and again. When you look at a cross as a believer, it should bring two very important things to mind. Jesus died in your place. A gift you did not earn. A gift for which you will forever praise him. And Jesus died in your place to give you the power to die to yourself every day to glorify him. The Christian life, church, is one of crucifixion. Prosperity gospel has worked long and hard to take these truths away. The cross of Christ is not merely a place of past substitution. It is that but it also is a present symbol of daily execution. Peter will come to greatly understand this later in his ministry. He actually writes in 1 Peter 4.1, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Jesus is preparing Peter for all that will come as we are faithful to him. What love for him above all else will mean for his faithful followers in the here and now. Paul said it so well in Galatians 2.20. On one hand, I know many times Christians love this verse. On the other hand, I think many Christians don't really understand it and need to. I pray you do. And I pray it's good news and motivation for your soul. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The crucified The life of following Christ is a life of death to self, to live unto Christ. Religion or modern day prosperity teaching will just say, add Jesus, add church and religion to your life to make it better by which you're still really on the throne, making your own way, really living out your own dreams and priorities. And and I get why that sells. I get why churches who say that that way get big. But the problem is, it's not Jesus' teaching. So even if if you're struggling with these truths today, and your flesh is struggling with it, your issue is not with this church or with me. Your issue is with God's holy word, tried and true. And I just pray that it's upsetting the apple cart of what was comfortable or what was settled and good to such a degree that you lean in to ask questions. You want to understand better what it means to be wholly devoted to him, to be saved and set free, truly to get to live for his eternal glory, and what that is. Joy that it is to know him and to walk with him, to see him redeem and sanctify our lives in ways we never could figure out in our own power. You notice the very final phrasing of verse 19. After saying this, He said to him, follow me. 
So in synopsis, Jesus is saying, love me more than anything else in your life. Do the work and ministry I've called you to do and so prove with the evidence of your love for me, your actions. And take up your cross daily and follow me. You see Jesus preparing Peter for what would come. For what life in Christ in a culture that hates Jesus will look like. And what's rad about this is God did his work in Peter to the degree that Peter lived it out faithfully. In just a moment of conjecture and assumption that he would be beaten or hurt at that fire pit at the high priest's courtyard, he bailed as a weak, young disciple. but commissioned, mobilized with the power of the Holy Spirit and the working of the Word, what these guys went on to do in spreading the Gospel and seeing many saved and in giving up their lives for Him was a remarkable transformation. Do you wake up every day to embrace the reality of being hated in this world, being persecuted? The reality that the Lord is at work and is leading us out to make much of His holy name? Or do you find a way to just avoid it? I want us to realize this morning, it's not about us. We belong to Him. Our lives are His. This is our great joy to belong to Him. It's our joy. It's no longer in our standing in this world or our temporary treasures. It's in Him and His eternal glory. The thing I find myself saying most lately, or, or thinking most lately, when people ask me how I'm doing, genuinely, the thing that comes to my mind is I'm, I'm privileged to get to serve King Jesus with my days. It's my joy to get to make much of his name. I want this to be on the forefront of our minds so that we don't get caught up in thinking it's about us or temporary pleasures. We allow it to become centered on us I want us to remain centered on Him, to abide in Him, to die to ourselves every day, to live for Christ. And this means that we'll embrace what He puts before us. We'll look to steward it well and not waste it, the good and the struggle. That our hope and joy would be in the eternal and not in the temporary. Paul said so well in Romans 8.18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Church, every day, every day, may we wake up and be dedicated to the Lord. To die to ourselves, to live to Christ, to find our satisfaction in Him, 
that it always remains and is about him. Amen? 2 Corinthians 6, 4-10. through 10. Will you stand with me? I want to read this last scripture. We're going to close with a song. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 6, 4-10 through 10 says this. As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown, as yet well known, as dying and behold, we live as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. Father, I pray that you would bring these truths to light as Jesus loved Peter well to prepare him for what was ahead, to prepare him for a work in his life that was for the eternal transformation of many people. A greater work than his legacy as a good fisherman. A greater work in that we still are learning from the witness of Peter today. Your work through him. We're standing here because these guys heeded the counsel of their Lord and went and lived it and died for it. Father, that we would lean in to embrace the truths of your word in the ways that it, it irks us or even rubs us wrong, that, that we would look to fight whatever it is in our flesh that, that wants to put that off to understand your holy word rightly, to be sent out for your glory, for the work that you have before us. Lord, I pray we love you more than anything else. That if we're struggling with that today, we're struggling with the idea of loving God more than our spouse or our children or the things in life that we hold so dear, that we would see the mispriority of that, that in our sin we would love you more than anything else. And then out of the overflow of that love, love our spouses and our children and the rest in a way we never did when it was up to us. Ways that's transforming our homes, our witness, and our work. Whatever time you've ordained for us to finish today or not. To experience great persecution and slander or not. Lord, you are doing a mighty work and we are joyful to be part of it. You are our God. Hear us as we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.